Hi and welcome back to part 3. If you've just tuned in I'm Danny Hill, the monk on a motorbike and today my guest is Daniel Ingram who caused a storm some time ago when he announced he was an arahat or fully enlightened. This is a long interview which I've divided up into different sections so please feel free to stop and start. There's show notes with an outline of what we're talking about and when on my website www.monkonamotorbike.com if you've got any questions or feedback for myself or Daniel, please feel free to get in touch. My email is also on the website. Enjoy. So we're back on. I think we just had a little bit of a bit of a break there. So I think we got. We were talking about memory. Yeah, one of the downsides. Yeah, so yeah, one of the downsides, uh, memory. One of the downsides is wanting to tell people about this stuff, and um, those are the two obvious uh, downsides. Uh, but the upsides are more than worth it. So, yeah. So something. I'm interested. What do you think happens in the brain? I know. I think in Dan, that Dan Harris podcast, you mentioned you'd done some. Was an MRI with Jed Brewer? FMRI with FMRI? Judd Brewer. Yeah. Yep. What What's happening? What's and the neurobiology of of arahatship of, of the path? What do you think's happening in the brain? We don't know. Um, straight up, like this is going to be pure speculation, uh, based on me not being a neuroscience, you know, researcher in that kind of way. Uh, it seems that basically you're wiring um, the experiences to speak for themselves so it's shifting the emphasis to uh, um, what might be called uh, the experiencer and and so um, you can look up there are people who talk about you know the sort of experiencer and and what that might mean neuroscientifically, uh, but um, it's it's basically shifting the focus to experience rather than sort of the content of one's thoughts. It's not that the content isn't valuable, but it's also adding a much more directly experiential component to it. And exactly how that manifests in changing brain wiring, I'm not sure. There also seems to be something of that synchrony piece, like something has to be more synchronized, I would guess, on EEG. That's actually what I was spending some um, time this afternoon, actually, before I came here, hopefully, uh, working with someone to try to sort some of that out. I would be amazed if there wasn't something that wasn't in phase before that was not in no, sorry, that's in phase now that was not in phase before. But these are just guesses. We don't know. Like, and. We, we probably are some reasonable way from having the sophisticated tools and analysis and knowledge that's going to bring some more defined clarity to this beyond a few findings here and there or something related to this you know default mode network something or whatever. Um, most of our tools for looking at what's actually going on in the brain are pretty crude. It's sort of like you know looking at the city of London from an airplane you get some sense of what's going on, but you don't really know what's going on in London from an airplane. And it's the same 
you know, current neuroscience is kind of like that. Oh, really? It's, it's, it's still still at quite a crude level, is it? Yeah, well, I mean, so you can still look at, you know, some patterns of, you know, I mean, you know, depending on how much you're willing to slice up people's brains or put wires on them, you can get <laughs> a little more to. fine level. But, you know, still like, you know, our, our, our neuroscientific capabilities and measuring capabilities are way better than they were. And you can see some cool stuff, but there's still nothing like what I would dream of to really sort of more definitively answer the question. What, what's, what's come out of what you've seen so far, what re- you've seen and any other research that's been done in terms of the neuro stuff? Yeah, so basically nobody's done serious research into what paths mean or stages of awakening mean. If, if the articles are there, I haven't seen them and don't know anything about them. Um, there are articles that show things about sort of default mode network activation versus deactivation. There are you know, studies I've actually been a part of that have looked at things related to um, you know, whether or not you can activate or deactivate your PCC, which is sort of a part of the default mode network, which is for those not, not who are not neuroscientists, the default mode network is sort of when you're just kind of hanging out and like sort of thinking about whatever, really not paying that much attention to your body and just kind of lost in your own thoughts and just kind of cruising along through life and not really called externally to some strong sight or sound or physical experience that's kind of your default mode network and it's usually moderately self-referential and it's you know in its content and uh, yeah so it's i'm being crude here some neuroscience researchers probably going ah but that's that'll do for sort of a layperson explanation that's your default mode network and it's a series of brain structures that sort of activate together and they're on a lot and they're important and they're how you think about yourself and your picture of yourself in the world and how you think about past and future and how you sort through some ideas and how you kind of process some things. So it's not like the default mode network is bad, um, but you know there are probably some things. You know you can you can show some things kind of related to the fact that um, people with stronger concentration abilities and stronger meditative abilities are in general kind of better able to activate or deactivate the default mode network more consciously and more you know with more control and more sense of the fact that they can you know, stay either present here in the space, you know, with their body and sights and sounds, or they can kind of go more internally. And they have more sort of metacognitive awareness of the ability to do that sort of more on command and with more consciousness than most people do. Most people, they disappear into their thoughts and they don't instantly kind of recognize that in that same kind of clear way that's easier to do when you've been better trained in meditation and and have had a little bit of transformation happen to you or or perhaps a lot. and so we can show some of those kinds of things and you can show some things related to the fact that you know more experienced practitioners can get into some sort of deeper states that have more theta or alpha's doing this or gamma's doing that or whatever on an eg um, but again these are still kind of like looking at traffic patterns in london from an airplane rather than knowing something about the conversations that people are having or the issues that individual people are dealing with in their apartments and in their lives, right? It's, we're still kind of at that level. So, it, you know, it's, it's pretty macro level stuff, but it's, it's, it's interesting and it's fun, it's fascinating. And the fact that you can show anything at all, right, that, that people with more meditative chops can do that ordinary people can't do as easily is still cool, right? Because for, I mean, that's really important because for years it was just like, we have no way to verify this except maybe heart rate and blood pressure and galvanic skin measurements or just nothing before that, um, you know, 
or you know, except people will close their eyes and have whatever experience, and we don't know, you know, or they'd say whatever they say, but we don't know. But now we're starting to at least know some basic things, and we can measure some basic things, and that's pretty cool, right? And that we can measure some of these basic things is a serious upgrade, and maybe it will provide the faith, you know, that maybe we could, some of the rest of it is true too, and and hopefully people will go and explore and if they want to and see for themselves. And, uh, and the technologies will improve, hopefully, if we don't burn the planet down first. And, uh, you know, or blow it up or whatever. Hey, details. Some stupid mammalian <laughs> thing that we're likely to do. Sorry, I'm being apocalyptic. Apologies for those who are not into apocalypticism. Um, good luck. Anyway, so, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Anyway, I mean, the long history of apocalypticism is in itself reassuring, right? It's been around for thousands true, of years, yeah. but it was also also true that for most of those thousands of years, we didn't actually have the capability to make it happen, and now we literally actually do. So that's kind of a different thing, right? So anyway, um, yeah. I'm just just going back. Part of the reason why you're over in England at the moment is because you you're starting up some research into the stages of insight. Yeah, so I got invited here uh, by Dr. Julieta uh, Galante, um, who's with the Department of Psychiatry and Wolfson College at Cambridge University to help operationalize what we'll call the stages of insight in practice and sort of look at the phenomenology of those and just see what we can come up with. And so that's been fun. Uh, she's really cool, nice person, good practitioner and fun to work with and so it's been exciting to just have time to really look at articles and some data and some case reports and people you know things people have uh, you know reported in various contexts and see how that compares to the literature and see how that can help move the conversation forward in terms of increasing the awareness of what's possible on the spiritual path what kind of patterns of experience are common on the spiritual path how to perhaps skillfully relate to people who might be having sort of more interesting spiritual experiences or openings and sort of building on the shoulders of some of the great giants who have come before like Christina and Stanislav Grof and Abraham Maslow and you know even going back to William James I'm just sort of one small person continuing in that tradition of attempting to bring awareness to the fact that there are other ways of perceiving reality, other experiences that people can have that may have some validity or meaning or clinical implications in the case of things gone sort of off the rails, which can happen, right? Again, not entirely safe stuff, period. Um, and so that's where I come in because I have experience with the world of emergency medicine. I know how they think and I have, you know, all of the training, uh, basically the coursework of a PhD epidemiologist. And instead of doing a dissertation, I went and you know, walked across the street and went to the medical school. So I've got a lot of data analysis skills. And I also have the meditative side of it and the theoretical side of it. So I've spent a reasonable amount of time pouring through the old texts, looking at what they say and talking to people about these things for 20 something years and having my own experiences. And so I'm just trying to raise the, take some of those, um, some of that knowledge that uh, people were kind enough to teach me and that I was lucky enough to acquire and help to pass it on to my colleagues, hopefully in the world of emergency medicine and psychiatry and, or A&E as you would call it, um, you know, what I do here. And, um, you know, hopefully mod hopefully upgrade the DSM five or six or whatever it becomes next. You know, I guess it'll be six or something. I guess it's kind of ongoing apparently. It's sort of the, opened the it. That's the, you know, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, a diagnostic and statistical manual that's used to help 
you know, people sort of categorize or figure out how to relate to people who are having unusual experiences. Because there's good crazy and there's bad crazy, mm -hmm. and it's important to sort, kind of sort those out, right? So people having weird powersy experiences or energetic experiences or kundalini experiences might be kind of good crazy, like not dangerous, not a threat, you know, but they need some normalization. They need some uh, just kind of trip sitting, if you will. Uh, they, you know, there, there's some frameworks and some things that can be helpful for dealing with those, both um, for the people around them and for them themselves. And there are clearly some ways to relate to internal experiences that are weird, that are more likely to go better than some other ways, and less likely to involve things like unfortunate diagnosis that really weren't helpful and just pathologized them, and medications that just cause side effects they really didn't need, or whatever. It's complicated, but, but sort of helping to lend some, some data and some perspective to that work is, is what I'm going to try to do. Can you just give a little bit of an overview about the stages of insight? Yeah, so the, 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 hmm. the first one is something called mind and body, and this is where you can see thoughts as thoughts. And this is revolutionary for some people who have never seen their thoughts as objects. They've always thought of their thoughts as theirs or them or something and being contracted into them. But you know, the first thing some people can notice in meditation is that they can see their thoughts as external experiences, and that's really cool. And then sort of the next stage is the phase where it kind of feels like you're messing up your breath with your attention, something called cause and effect. This is in meditation. Yes, yeah, this is a meditation stage. Meditation. And then there's this weird stage of like weird musculoskeletal tension. Usually happens a few days into retreat, but can happen in daily life. And it can cause weird sort of shoulder tensions and back spasms, muscle things. Spasmatic torticollis would be the fancy medical term for it or wry neck, it can do some weird things like that and give you others some dark feelings as well. And then after that is something called the arising and passing away. And this is an old Theravada map, but it just happens to be really applicable today. These stages still happen today, basically just like they were described back then. Um, and so you get into this, that's the spiritual high, right? So this is spiritual openings. This is Kundalini stuff. This is energetic stuff. This is bliss. This is bright lights. This is first powers he experiences. Some people have vivid dreams. Some people get kind of like not sleep for days or be really incredibly excited or incredibly creative or it, it can look sort of like a manic episode. It can kind of basically be a manic episode um, for a few people. Uh, some people it's not as dramatic. It's just got some buzzy stuff and they tingling and light pleasure and then it's gone. So there's this very wide range of presentations from very, very mild and subtle and short to long, dramatic and pretty darn you know, impressively fireworky, uh, but so that's the, the spiritual high basically, and then after that comes the sort of predictable spiritual low. So if you what goes up must come down, and in the same kind of way, this is sort of your dark night stuff, your journey to the underworld, your hero's journey. Would call the knowledges of suffering in Buddhism, which classically listed as in order: stage five is dissolution, stage six is fear, stage seven is misery, stage eight is disgust, stage nine is desire for deliverance to be to be delivered from your you know, screwed up life or job or relationship or world or brain or body or whatever. And then something called reobservation, which is really the kind of kick in the ass, touching your own crazy. And that can be a kind of challenging one. But again, all these things can be mild and just sort of you know, be no big deal or just, oh, I feel kind of anxious today. And then that was literally the whole thing. So I don't mean to scare anybody, but at the far end of what can happen, it can get pretty wild and pretty dysfunctional and very disorienting for people, not recognizing that these are standard predictable patterns. So once you have these an A and P experience, as I say a lot, um, the, the dark night follows the arising and passing away like thunder follows lightning. 
And again, it might be mild, it might be short, it may be no big deal. It often isn't this big deal, but for some it is. And when it is, it's worth having some frameworks and some normalization and some skillful ways to relate to it because people have spent over 2,000 years figuring out technologies for if you get into these stages, like how to handle them, how to deal with them, how to make sense of them, how to conceptualize them in a way that's beneficial, um, and ways to move out past them to stages like equanimity and then you know stages of awakening or whatever um, for those who manage to figure that out. And so equanimity would be the stage that comes after the dark night stuff, which can be really nice and sometimes incredibly profound and sometimes very ordinary. It's got this range of manifestations too. So big topics um, that could be the subject of podcast after podcast, actually. Each one of those stages I could go on about for an hour, basically. Um, but the short story is that people these days are often being taught meditation in secular contexts or they're running into these experiences in their yoga class or they're running into it you know with some breathing exercise they're doing for a labor you know birthing class or whatever and and people doing entheogens can run into these experiences like just you know, psychedelics for those not familiar with the term just thrown into the deep end sort of some of the stuff sometimes quite surprisingly and suddenly when that's not what they were expecting and so um, having some conceptual frameworks that are time-tested and skillful and verifiable and lead to people going, oh, wow, that's so helpful to know that. I'm not just broken or crazy or weird. Like, this is a thing. Yeah, these things are things. And, and that can be really normalizing for people. And so helping to use some case reports where people not only have experienced these things, but also experienced the, bed of the, sorry, the benefit of normalizing them is the kind of data I hope to bring into the scientific literature hopefully in some reasonable way that the you know, staunch scientific materialists or whatever um, don't freak out about too badly. It's, it's kind of, as you say, map mapping this, our mental health, our mental territory and bringing it somewhat more into the orthodox world and saying these are the associations. It might not just be what you think. It might be this guy's going through these stages and, right. and, and, this, and you need to deal with it in different ways is what you're saying. Yeah, and again, people have tried this before. So I'm tilting with a windmill that multiple people have tried and largely failed, okay. and some pretty impressive people with a lot of knowledge and a lot of skill. So if I fail too, okay, fine, whatever. You know, but at least it will have tried and hopefully move the conversation forward a little bit. And you know, this stuff changes with generations, basically. And so you have to have long time horizons and kind of low expectations and realize that the best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. And that's more than likely here, given the track record of really brilliant people with lots of good data and good ways of talking about this stuff who did not manage to make that much of an impact on the public or medical or psychiatric or psychological consciousness uh, through their work. So we'll see how it goes. Um, and you doing, is this, you know, MRIs or EEGs or is this, is this conversations? Starting with case or? reports. So starting okay. with case reports and uh, things that people have written about their experiences and um, gonna move from those, some of those uh, to hopefully some more interview-based data. We'll see where all this all goes. And then I've got a little bit of fMRI and EEG stuff that hopefully I'll be working with some people on and we'll see where all that leads from there. And so there's, there's, there's the data sets and then there's how to break them down and where to present them and it's the funniest thing, like while some of the clear targets are like, I hope to get some stuff in the textbooks of emergency medicine that are standard. I hope to get some stuff in like, 
you know, British National Health Service policy guidelines and, and those kinds of things. Um, but I will also go for more public consciousness stuff, because if you write a scientific article, you know, maybe 50 or 100 people will read it if you're lucky, right? The impact, you know, might impact some very important people, but in the public consciousness and level of knowledge is very small. So figuring out how to manage the sort of social media, right? And sort of, I have some connections in the bigger news world that at some point I will probably attempt to utilize for some of this stuff to, to get some of this material out there. We'll see how that goes. Again, um, you know, the amount of information that is being thrown at people and what's competing for people's attentional bandwidth nowadays is so extreme, huge, yeah. you know, and some of the pressing issues of the day and crazy politics and unbelievable drama and the sort of daily reality shows of, you know, the, of the mad world we live in clearly make a lot of noise and trying to get this um, signal above that noise is obviously going to be very, very challenging. And we'll just see how that goes. <laughs> it'll, it'll be fun to try again. So. How, how long is this project going to be going for? My guess is years. Right, I mean, it's going to be ongoing. Yeah, 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 this is going to take a long time. There's nothing quick about any of this, just yeah. the data analysis of hundreds of cases and case reports and figuring out the best ones and figuring out how to present it and um, uh, figuring out how to analyze it and uh, you know, getting it submitted to whatever I submit it to, probably in a few pieces and parts to various journals, depending on my targets and clinical outcome goals. Uh, and then getting those approved and revised and printed and then get some, you know, whatever the impact that has. And it'll be part of a, an ongoing conversation that will slowly maybe shift things. And then there will be people who rebut it and don't believe it. And, you know, yeah, that's how science and the public dialogue goes, right? So you got to have very realistic, realistic expectations when you go into this business and, and be in for the long haul, because that's the only thing that really has much of a hope in hell of doing anything useful. Uh, but hopefully I'll live some reasonable number of years and, and have the health and interest to keep at it. Um, you know, are you so. going to be, are you going at it full time? Uh, that's what I'm, I've spent the summer doing this largely full time. Yeah. And so, you know, I'll take some breaks and go on retreats and do some stuff. But like, uh, you know, most days when I'm like not on a retreat where I'm obviously then just focusing on practice, I'll be doing at least a little bit of this and some days a lot of this. Because uh, you, you've retired from medicine full time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this is another point that, that gets raised that's a question that you often hear asked you know you've reached fourth, fourth path you've kind of come to the end of the, the path that doesn't exist etc but you carry on practicing the Buddha carried on practicing yes. the Buddha went on retreat you, you practice people carry on practicing but you kind of think hold on sure what do you why are you practicing what is there to practice for what's the yeah, so um, point number one, uh, the only one of the three trainings is, is the last one that you can actually come to the end of. So you literally can flip over the, the delusional sense of center, doer, watcher, controller, knower, beer to open self-aware space that you know dissolves on its own and arises on its own is happening naturally and knows itself where it is. So that's literally a flippable switch. And once the last layer of that is flipped, there's that, it's done. So that actually has, weirdly enough, an end point. You can stop the process of delusion is the other way to say it. Um, so, but the, the other trainings don't have endpoints. So um, concentration skills continually benefit from practice. The Buddha was for, you know, always practicing his jhanas because those skills fade if you don't use them. Um, it's not like you might not have some baseline level that even if you haven't done this in a while, you might not be able to do it. It's like me playing guitar. Even if I haven't played guitar in a year, I can pick up a guitar and play basic stuff. But if I want to get back to really good, I have to practice a bunch, 
right? And then there's this other layer and level of skill that comes out that I can't just access straight out of the gate. The same is true with concentration practices. My baseline concentration skills are pretty good, but when I really exercise them, they get better. And it's the, just like any muscle or skill. And so, and those are healing, helpful, revealing. They're just good for this mammal. So the deep jhanas and the stuff that comes out of that, they're just good. They're, they're, they're bio, you know, I don't know the biochemistry, but it feels biochemically good, right? It's not a very scientific statement, but it, it seems to be of real benefit to this body, mind, heart thing. Is it like a daily maintenance medicine, uh, just a skillful thing? I don't know if it's lengthening my telomeres or if it's reducing epigenetic stress markers. I have no idea about any of that, but I do know it feels really good Doing to some do good it. Stuff, it, it seems valuable. Yeah. It yeah. seems, yeah, just like people say, oh my golly, if I don't exercise or I don't do my yoga or I don't, you know, or if I eat badly, you know, then I don't feel as good or whatever, you know. So in the same way, this seems to be just a skillful, useful thing to do. And then there's training in ethical behavior and morality, which is this huge thing, right? So that's psychology, that's skillful speech, that's learning new skills, that's that's all the ordinary stuff in the world, right? Which I still think of as practice. I think of all that as encompassed in, in helping to try to figure out how to reduce suffering and promote happiness and well-being and stuff. And I continue to learn and grow and develop and hopefully mature as I get older. And that's just an ongoing process that is its own practice. And the other practices may have some impact on that, but they don't do all of the work of it. It, it would be like, um, what would it be like? It would be like saying, if I just power lift a whole lot, I will get really good at dancing because I'm getting strong muscles that you know I can use to dance. Well, that's not true, right? If you want to dance, you need to practice dancing and maybe just developing the strong muscles needed for certain dance techniques or whatever is not the same as actually practicing dancing. In the same way, you know, practicing skillful behavior um, is its own skill. Uh, skillful speech is its own skill and just working on our stuff, right? Because there's stuff. There's Life is about stuff. And by being alive, uh, we have to deal with the fact that we have stuff to deal with. And that's just how it goes. But presumably, there's a certain amount to be said for, though, if, if you have increased levels of mindfulness and concentration, you are more aware of... Yeah the effects on yourself and others of your unskillful behavior it's it's, yeah. it's not very pleasant to some often, degree is it? yeah to some degree but you know anybody who says i don't have blind spots i don't have you know issues uh, that's also not true so like we we have to recognize even with our increased mindfulness or concentration or practice or whatever that that, that doesn't save us from the ordinary human psychological aspects uh, that we are mortal and we cannot see or know everything and we're still going to have issues because that's the fact of mammalian conditioning. Um, it's just, you know, it's just the nature of the system. C can you, you, you said, you know, the, the, the wisdom component, the bit where, you know, you reach a certain end of that path and a, fl a flip is, a switch is flipped. Can that, can that go back? Can that, is, does anybody, does that reverse in anybody? Does as far as I can tell, no, once it finally locks in. So I had this weird period of instability of about a week on retreat where I was sort of in it and out of it and then something happened and I realized that even the out of it couldn't actually be out of it and then some weird thing flipped over and then I was done and it's been stable is the wrong word because that seems to imply a stable mindset or mind state or something but I will say the process that was problematic stopped and stayed stopped so that's the more skillful way to describe it I think the unskillful process of identification or making a a center point self or doer out of an impermanent natural reality just stopped happening and stayed stopped and nothing seems to change that 
uh, pain, adversity, sleep deprivation, hunger, nothing. Nothing, nothing that. stops it. Yeah, it yeah. It's just the way things are. Yeah, yeah. And this is the other thing. I mean, you've mentioned this and stuff I've read. People, again, people like Srinivas Agadatta. Everybody seems to say this is long, long, long preparation, and then something is very sudden. There's a. It seems to be flip. Yeah, this was a flip. I mean, it had a sort of a, a week-long kind of in and out of it period, which some people have and some people don't, right? So there's there's variability of that. Uh, but once it finally stabilized, um, which is a weird world for the thing, it stopped going back to the other way then it hasn't gone back. And it's been 16 years now, so that's pretty good track record as these things go. You know, if, if it, you know, if something happens, okay, whatever, I can't predict the future, but that's, that's pretty impressive. In, in, in most, most, most people, you know, I'm historically, they, they, they seem to stay with it, don't yeah. they? Exactly, yeah. Sure. But, and there's layers to the thing. So there was many layers to this thing, right? And there was lots of cycles and lots of deepenings along the way to that happening, right? So it was not just a straight, it was not just either just one switch or a straight shot or anything. You know, you can read all about my strange story of this journey in my book, which is free online, mctb.org, or you can buy it if you the want to. the title of the book? Um, yeah, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. So you can find that at mctb.org if you want to um, just read it for free. Because, um, again, I make sure to give this stuff away. Uh, I'm not doing this for the money. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Fair enough. And, and I've, I've said it's an exceedingly fine book. I would strongly recommend anybody to read it if you're interested in these things. So, yeah. How, how long... Sorry, a couple of questions. Arahatship is full enlightenment. Full but enlightenment is a, is a loaded word. That's what I was going to get at. Is there stages beyond that? Is, yeah, is the so, Buddha different from an Arahat? Yeah, so I'm going, to, I'm going to get doctrinal for the moment. So this, I'm going to be simply reciting doctrine because this is sort of above my pay grade. I do not claim Buddhahood, so I'm not speaking about this from my own experience, where I do speak about Arahatship from my own experience. So in the text, it very clearly says that there's a sub substantial number of differences between Buddhas and Arahats. So... Uh, the standard dogmatic list, if you go back, you'll find the following things. One, um, a Buddha is an arhat, but they say they're an arhat, but even deeper. What that means is never defined. It just says, like, um, you know, they say, he says, I, you know, arhats have understood this thing, and I have understood it to the very end. But what that is, is never explained anywhere. So it's just, you just have to find those few words and go, okay, dude, Buddha, whatever wish you had said more but you didn't so i don't know the next thing is buddhas technically have all the powers mastered period whereas arhats may or may not have powers and the vast majority of arhats were not reported to have mastered them or maybe even you know certainly not all of them maybe even not any of them and plenty just had none of them um, so uh, buddha also in theory and this is all dogma has but maybe it has something to it i don't know uh, has gone through this incredibly long process of being bodhisattva, where they refined their karma, which in some sort of weird personality lesson-y kind of way, sort of seems to, you know, transmit light life to life. Some Buddhist scholar is freaking out right now. But if you read like the stories and the doctrine and the particularly the Jataka, God help you, like the Jataka birth stories, which are all these 
like previous lives of the Buddha, and he was a monkey, and he went through this sort of fairy tale like lesson. He learned this lesson about being generous or whatever. Like, you know, there are all these stories. Anyway, but there is this notion in the tradition that a, a Buddha has gone through this unu very unusual, many, 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 many lifetimes purification process that makes them just orders of magnitude more skillful and wise than anybody else. And they've chosen to do this? Yeah, and they yeah. have somehow chosen to do this. And that, um, and so then they, they're just sort of categorically a different thing. Buddha's also in the Theravada. And again, you've got to look at Theravada versus Mahayana. These, these definitions are not all the same. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but, uh, but I'm talking very Theravada-y because that's more of my background. Someone else can fill in the Mahayana-y or Vajrayana-y way. These of are all different schools Buddhism. of Buddhism. Yeah, different yeah. schools of Buddhism. Or, and then you've got Zen, which is totally its own thing. They're just not map people, right? Not kind of like, yeah, it's like ducks doing architecture or something. Yeah, no, like, anyways, Zen people mapping. Uh, yeah, not their strength. Anyway, so, yeah. Um, anyway, but the point is that... Uh, the, um, Buddhas, yeah, are just categorically different things. They also show up in an era generally without the Dharma, and they start the wheel of the Dharma in motion again. So they have this sort of like cosmic bringer of the wisdom thing. They might show up every few thousand years or something, and they start the wheel of the Dharma, meaning they teach, they discover it, rediscover it, and they, they teach it, and they start the whole motion and process that eventually degenerates and then the Dharma disappears and then another Buddha shows up again. So they've got this sort of cosmic job of restarting this wheel of wisdom teachings that, you know, and this is all just straight up Theravada dogma you can read about for yourself in the Pali Canon and commentaries. Enjoy. So anyway, but that's this that's the story for better or for worse. What's it? Do, what's your? Do you do you feel like there's more to come? There's there more out there you could, you could attain. That's not the right phrase, but you know what I mean. So I'm clearly very different in many ways than I was 16 years and plus ago when this thing finally flipped over. Right? I have an appreciation of it that I didn't have then. It's the same in some ways, but the appreciation of it, the sense of what it is and what it isn't, the the there's a sort of a a deepening of it but there's no obvious way to map that it's it's kind of like like even the buddha like you look at him early on in his teachings versus later and he was a different animal like he, he talked about things differently he had more sophisticated frameworks he he eventually let nuns into the order he became more progressive he you know there's sort of this you can tell there's this sort of maturation process and you can see that in the lives of the the great disciples of the buddha again um, whereas we get older and we get more used to these things and we get to performance test them and have them sort of do what they do to our brains and conditioning, which is beneficial, which is a long, slow, organic process. Uh, it's kind of like there's a, a, a Chinese Chan monk named, uh, sorry, uh, not Chinese, um, Korean, sorry, Korean Chan monk named Chi No, and Chan is the Korean word for Zen. So Chi No, uh, um, has a great quote which is uh, that just because the sun the sun is shining brightly doesn't mean all the snow will melt at once and uh, I think that's really true so there is an organic something even it's it's fascinating to watch like old issues that hadn't arisen in decades suddenly get re-triggered by some memory or running into some person I hadn't seen in years and like watch that whole set of conditioning arise in this new space and the sort of different way of perceiving it and while it is true that it is in some ways kind of instantly changed by arising in the new space, 
in other ways there's an organicness to it going, oh, okay, no, like this is not the same. I can relax, I can reconfigure this. And there's something of a reconfiguration, almost like issue by issue and situation by situation that sort of happens as these things get re-triggered and come up and are perceived a totally different way. Uh, and so watching that process has been fascinating and it's ongoing, right? So it's not like, oh, I've reached you know, the summit of perfection and there's no more to go on any front of human development or wisdom or kindness or compassion, nothing like that at all. It still is, is continuing to do something and I still continue to get benefit from the practice and just getting older, I think, which is helping, right? Slowly, I'm eventually kind of mellowing a little bit, and maybe getting a little bit of relative wisdom in the ordinary sense, I hope. I, I pretend anyway. So uh, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. Do, do you think your continuing of the practice? Do you think that helps to modify things even? Oh yeah, no question. So I, like even that, uh, I continue to get relatively beneficial effects um, from going on retreats, from continuing to sit, from continuing to engage in in even just reading about psychology or reading about or interacting with people or just trying to be nicer or whatever, or, or making mistakes, right? There's still growth that's happening on all kinds of fronts, definitely, absolutely. Be yeah, benefits I mean, such as what? Wow, um, let's see here. Like, uh, where do I start? Um, yeah, so like some of the retreats I've gone on have been just weirdly healing of like previous traumas that like came up in some different way and like sort of got released or um, that showed me things about my mind or about causality or about karma or about whatever that I just hadn't seen before. Very kind of relative specific insights that still had like real psychological benefit were really transformative in some way. Either released something or showed me something or gave me some increased faith in or um, in something or just did something useful. I could go on and on about various stories, but uh, yeah, like continuing to go on retreats to practice and just to try to live a, a good life as best I can um, continues to do useful things. Um, I don't know how much specifics you want. Some of the stories sound kind of weird, but and I've told them before, but um, you want that. You're nodding yes. Go, 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 give us, give us right, one. So this is, this is one I've told before, right? So, and, But um, if you've heard my previous podcast, but this is one of the most dramatic ones. So it's an outlier. This is nothing like an ordinary thing. It's like, oh yeah, I have experiences like this every day. No, this is like a few times in a lifetime, maybe like, or I don't know, but like very, very rare. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to the top only because it makes for better podcasting radio. Go for more it, yeah, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but like that, that also could give a really false impression of like, sure. yeah, so like I, I don't wanna try to do that, but just realize what this is. This is nothing more than that. So I went on this retreat, um, it was seven, I just retired from emergency medicine seven days before and I'm, I'd literally gotten on a plane and like, uh, I guess it was like nine days before and like flown to Paris and went on a retreat like, you know, almost the next day. And uh, um, so I'm on this fire casino retreat. So this year? Uh, this is uh, two years ago. Two years ago. So well, a year and a half ago. It was uh, March. Uh, sorry, I guess early April, sorry, of uh, 2018. Um, I've got my dates right. And I'm just retreating with some friends. This two-week fire casino retreat in a rented uh, chateau in uh, Normandy. Um, uh, the, you can listen to some reports from that um, on the www.firecasina.org if you're interested in this technique. Anyway, and um, so I'm day seven and literally like, 
the the next night after I retired from emergency medicine, I just started getting flooded with what was clearly unprocessed stuff. My brain was like, okay, you didn't have time or space to process this that while you were doing this job, but you've got to now, and we're gonna start flooding you with terrible dreams and just flashback-like memories and kind of sort of PTSD-like stuff, right? Because the thing about doing A&E or emergency medicine or whatever you wanna call it, is that you get to see a mind-bogglingly amount of, you know, bad, mind-bogglingly bad stuff in high doses. The kind of thing like literally people might see one of those things and like be years of therapy and PTSD and all that stuff. And I saw this stuff hundreds and hundreds of times, Re you know, and I sort of had my worst list of terrible bad stuff I had seen, right? You know, the dead kids or the horrible traumas or people, you know, dying, screaming in their own blood or whatever, you know, was... anyway. Um, and so, uh, suddenly this stuff was flooding back and I was like waking up like five or six times a night having had the kind of dreams that, you know, and I've told the story before, but it's like, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know if any of you have had that school dream where like you're late for class and you didn't bring a pencil and you didn't study for the material and you get to the exam and you haven't studied anything and the questions keep changing and you're naked and everybody's laughing at you. Sort of like, you know, it's kind of a standard dream that some people have. I certainly have had a reasonable number of those. I was having the ER equivalent of that dream. <laughs> yeah, except this is like not a dream you want to have. Like, so there's like 15 people screaming on beds with their intestines falling out and the, they're bleeding out all over the place and the power's out and I can just barely see anything and there's no nurses and no medicines and the cabinets are all empty and the room is slowly flooding with blood that's threatening to drown us all as they're like shrieking at the top of their lungs in mind-boggling agony and there's nothing I can do about it. And yeah, those are not dreams you want to have. So, and I'm having those a lot. And I'm like, whoa, this stuff is like, like bubbling up to the surface with full force. So finally on day seven, uh, I sit down in the morning and I sit down in this ridiculous thick bliss, like absurd, like it's the first thing when I hit the cushion and it's like, oh my God, you've gotta be kidding me, really? Wow, like I'm used to some pretty good bliss, but this is like, oh, <laughs> incredible. But it doesn't have that sort of like edgy quality that bliss can sometimes have. It's just stable, like and delightful, like heavy, heavy, jonic bliss. And I'm suddenly in this incredibly different space and space is like sparkly white, like it's like white sparkly mist all through space. And I'm not much of an aura seer. I've only sort of seen my aura kind of a few times doing these practices, even sometimes when I wanted to, I couldn't do it. But somehow my aura is like perfect primary electric blue and like a bar magnet, like with this incredibly reg good regularity to it. And I sit there for like five minutes in this space. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, I, this is not on my radar screen. I don't know this one. This is a new one. I would have known, wouldn't have known to ask for this, but I'm like, this is totally cool. And I sit there for five minutes and there's just nothing going on but this, and it's great. And it's like, wow, this is incredibly, richly, awesomely stable. And then one of these memories comes up of some horrible thing I'd seen in the ER. And, but it came up like a little phone icon, sort of in my abdomen, and it kind of flipped over a few times and then disappeared. And when it disappeared, I felt this weird release, like this weight lifting off my shoulders, like, well, that was cool. Like, it felt like it trauma released it. Like people talk about trauma release or what you dream of, like, you know, sort of working through an issue. It felt like it had done that in like the best way, like really actually done that, which is a hard thing to actually do. And the bliss stayed stable, the white sparkly space misty thing stayed stable, the aura stayed stable. And I was like, I wonder if I could do that again. 
So I pull up another one. It comes up like a little phone icon. Very consciously over. pulled one yeah, up. I yeah, I was like, let's pull up another one of these memories. And it just comes up like a little phone icon, flips over, disappears. And again, there's that sense of release and lightness. So I start doing this with my whole list. And like the space that I'm in doing this is just like taking it. Like like nothing's messing up this bliss. It's just like, we got this. We're, we're, this this white sparkly space is like- We got your back. We yeah. got your, we're, we're here for you. Like this is like, it's, it's good. You can keep doing this. And so I start bringing them up like five or 10 at a time like and like it's not taking long it just take a few seconds they flip over they disappear and I'm like went through the kids and the dead you know the this and the dead that's and the like screaming this is and the horrible that's and the like you know mutilated this is and you know the other bad things and suddenly I'm kind of like running out of them and I'm like well that's pretty much all the bad ER stuff I can think of and so I started on the rest of things like surgeries, car accidents, my you know divorce from my first marriage, breakups, you know junior high school crushes that went wrong, you know like I'm like going back through this whole list of early childhood trauma, you know and like you know parents getting divorced and custody battle and all this crap and like and that was pretty much all I could think of there, right? And I was like, yeah, that's kind of it. And the reason I had sat down that morning at seven was because breakfast was like 10 minutes late. And then someone called and said, hey, breakfast is ready. So I get up and I feel great. And, but my entire body, if you've ever swum a mile or like done some serious cardio workout and you get it, well, it's particularly swimming a mile and you get out of the pool, I don't know if anyone's done this or two miles is even worse. Your whole body can feel kind of weird and weak and shaky in this kind of strange way. And my whole body felt like that, but I hadn't swum a mile or anything. I'd just been sitting there for 10 minutes like this, but it was this like really powerful body feel and my whole face and throat and chest felt like I had been crying for like hours. There's like a specific, like I had a mouth taste like I had been crying. I don't know how to explain that, but sometimes I get this sort of taste in my mouth when I've been crying and like, but I hadn't been crying and I had this sort of weird shaky freeness to me and like this unbelievable sense that weight had just lifted off my shoulders. The dream stopped the whole sense of like PTSD flashbacky from my ER crazy job and life for almost two decades of healthcare and exposure to terrible things was just like, felt like it was almost entirely gone. Like, and this is an extreme example of like unbelievable benefit from practice. This is nothing, I don't even know how to do this. I don't know how to tell anybody to do just this. Happened, yeah. It's a one-off thing that just happened, but this is the kind of reason I keep going on retreats because things like that have happened. And you never know when they're gonna happen. It's unpredictable. I don't know how the hell to tell anybody. So it's kind of useless and frustrating. I'm sorry about that for anyone, but like just show up, get your concentration strong, practice well, maybe, I don't know. Like couldn't tell you, but it happened to me. And it, it's still to this day, I feel vastly lighter. Like all that stuff was just kind of cleared out in some kind of way. Like my amygdala, like freed all those trapped loops of cortisol and you know epinephrine written you know, fear patterns or tight circular stuff that, you know, is there to defend a mammal, you know, and remind it, you know, of like, oh, this is a bad thing, this is a bad thing. So in case it arises again, you'll know how to do something. That's why these systems were laid down. But the pathological version was still not helpful. And awakening clearly doesn't just automatically make your amygdala behave, right? That's not what it does. Um, and so this made my amygdala just clear out a whole lot of that crap. And that was of unbelievable benefit. So I'm incredibly grateful for and, and do, do, the do you feel the ongoing benefit of that? Oh yeah, that. I can still feel that today. Like there's a lightness that I just didn't but Were have you before. aware of that trauma before that? Well, I mean, I could have told you my standard list of, you know, bad things that had happened to me, you know, easily. Um, but usually it was very weird the way they all just came pouring up after I retired. 
like it was like this floodgate just opened like okay you have not dealt with a lot of this shit now's for so the, long the time, you're yeah. going to deal with it have a nice day Jeez, and it was just yeah, yeah. yeah just flooding up and there it was and thank god for the practice that a week later just totally oh, shit, it was gone. yeah it was like whoa yeah. that was awesome so again like it's it's sort of a, a fucked up example because like <laughs> i like i you know like because it's the sort of extreme thing you know i don't make anybody feel weird or whatever or start off comparison or competition right but just the, the fact that such things are possible is inspiring to me and that's why like i'm going another Absolutely, two week yeah. you know two week retreat coming up here in september and october with a bunch of people to do this just with some friends and uh, so hopefully practice together and hopefully it'll help us somehow. What's your, um, how often do you tend to practice these days? Every day. Daily practice? Yeah. How long, how long would you practice for? So formal practice, usually about a half hour to an hour. Almost always, uh, unless I'm really tired and it's really late, I, I sit every night before I go to bed. And I often will meditate in the morning after my alarm has gone off for a little while. Or if I wake up in the middle of the night um, for whatever reason, that's a great time to practice. And then like on the train, you know, the train here, I, before I, you know, started doing some reading and some work, I just sat there on the train and, and just closed my eyes and did some practice. And even just walking along, like I do walking practice, just walking down the street, you know, and there's just something about walking that really gets underestimated. So I mentioned sitting a lot, but like walking practice integrates something. It does something. It shows you something about this mammal and how it moves and is, and it's just something good about it. Um, so and so yeah and sometimes when I'm just standing there like waiting for the train I'll just be practicing because why not and so it, it's sort of a habit and it's nice like I get and the other thing is it's it's very self-reinforcing in some ways because I get a lot of good stuff out of practice right it's not the struggle it used to be it used to be hard it was something I had to remember it felt artificial or forced um, but eventually it became something other than that and so I'm very thankful for that and have you always have you always done roughly that sort of amount? You know, you said thirty to thirty to sixty in the morning, thirty to sixty in the evening, given whatever the circumstances. Are yeah, roughly. I mean, when I was in residency, it was harder because sometimes I was working a hundred hours a week, right? And you know, or whatever. So like, you know, yeah. But other other than that, at least thirty minutes a day, um, unless some an unusually hard day or an unusually weird thing. But you know, finding little five or ten minute periods through the day to just practice, like. Even in the Uber ride over here, like I just closed my eyes for a little bit and there I was like dropping into some stuff and and just letting the healing power of attention and calming, you know, stuff do the good stuff it does to this body mind thing. Yeah, it's just useful. Do, do you have a practice? Do you do you do you still do Vipassana insight? Do you need to practice inside or do you just do concentration? Or? So the vast majority of the time I actually just literally just sit because uh, uh, that's not really, uh, you know, I spent so much time doing really formal structured practice that those tracks are just well-worn. It's kind of like playing a guitar. There are certain scales or, or songs I, I, can, happens, I can nearly yeah. play in my sleep. I, don't, I, don't, I could be on stage jumping around and I would not have to pay any attention at all to play those scales or songs, right? Because I've just played them so many times. In the same kind of way, like I, I just sit there and cool stuff happens, right? But, th but that's, again, really not fair because it took me a long time to build those tracks and to wear those grooves such that it's automatic and natural. And there are sometimes when I do more formal structured practices, like when I go in this fire casino retreat, I will do formal fire casino practice, um, which you can read about. It's basically look at a light source or a flame for a minute or two, close your eyes, follow the after images on the backs of your eyelids or in your inner space or whatever you want to call it until you got nothing organized, open your eyes again, 
look at the light, do that again, you know, at your own rhythm, your own pace, whenever you, you know, however you want to. And um, so I will do that as a formal structured practice just because I think it's a really cool practice that's done good things for me before and I hope maybe it'll do good things again. Um, and I just find it really beautiful. It's a beautiful object. Uh, it can get us some really interesting territory. And, um, and so sometimes like, it was like, a, I don't know, it was a few months ago, I guess. Like, I was like, wow, I haven't really spent much time in the formless realms in a while. I was like, I wonder what that would be like. And it took me about three days, about maybe three hours a day to get back to pretty good formless realms. I was like, okay, yeah, there's Some of the jhana practices. Yeah, it's like, you know, because those are muscles that they benefit from use. It's like anything. And so uh, it's just fun to be able to have options. To play around. And yeah. it's also fun to have trained well and now have this stuff be relatively easy, right? But it wasn't before, you know, and so I, I get to benefit from the time I put in and uh, just the work I did. And um, so, and realize that if you hopefully do that same work, you can have that same benefit. Well, why do fire casino rather than visualizing a deity or just staying with a breath or meta? Why fire casino? Yeah, so I just like it. I just find it <laughs> fascinating and it does all these cool things and can lead to all these places. It keeps, I realize it's a practice that kind of keeps giving me what I need, even if I don't recognize it at the time. Um, and so if you look at the old texts, like what were they doing back in the day? If you look at the old practice manuals, like the, the Vipsudimaga and the Vimudimaga, which are routine, you know, I realize some strains of Buddhism don't like them, some Thai forests and whatever, but, but still they're like major practice manuals that people were practicing from. And they're clearly written with a much more practical bent than the Pali Canon was, right? And much more, much easier to practice out of. And um, so, uh, and you get, these are what they were doing. Like they were doing casinas. Like there's way more pages on casino practice than there is on like casinas the breath. the sign, isn't it? It's the yeah. object. Yeah. Like, and, and, the, and now I know why, right? So they very, very rapidly develop extremely deep concentration. So I've got whatever I have at baseline just out of the gate, you know, from a bad day in the office or whatever. But then there's the, the concentration that I can get to on retreat. And this just very rapidly just develops extremely powerful concentration because the feedback you get is so immediate, right? Again, as I've said before, like I have friends who are like, you know, trying to develop thousand or, you know, dollar toys or whatever. They'll give you some feedback on your meditation, let you know how you're doing. The after images on the backs of your eyelids will do the same thing for nothing, right? <laughs> you don't you don't need a thousand dollar toy. You just need eyelids, um, and so for those of you who don't have eyelids, uh, you can still do this against a wall, right? So just look at the image and look at a wall, blank wall or whatever, and just follow the colors. I'm sure everybody has eyelids, hopefully, um, and so. Uh, uh, the point is that, that it's just really deep stuff and it provides all these extremely cool and interesting experiences. We're very visual creatures like, and we use our visual sense so much all the time. We've just got strong muscles there and it just makes sense to use those. And it rapidly gets into like elemental experiences and realms and powersy stuff and interactions with entities. You know, when you talked about like, why not visualize a deity? Well, actually, if you really want to visualize a deity well, do like two weeks of fire casino and get real color and image control, right? And then when you actually want to visualize a deity, you're literally seeing the friggin' thing like in brilliant, like 3D living CGI in a way that is totally different from what most people's visualization practice is like. So I just consider it very, very foundational and it goes in all these cool directions. 
um, and it starts going there very naturally, which is neat. So uh, I just uh, am, I just find it really exciting. And every time I go, the retreats are different and fresh, and there's something new, and I get to learn something and see some new cool thing about the path, or that relates to experiences I've read pe about people having in the old text or some other book today. And I'm like, oh wow, that's that thing. Yeah, oh cool, neat. Um, and it just keeps giving that, so I keep doing it. I uh, haven't found any obvious end to it, and it seems like such a rich thing that I'm just really still quite excited about it. Maybe someday I'll be excited about something else, but at the moment, um, it's really good. And you can combine it with like loving-kindness phrases or a mantra, because the visualizations and the mantras not only don't seem to interfere with each other, but they seem to kind of reinforce each other sometimes. And so I'll use various phrases of which metaphrases are some of my most common ones. I think metapractice is really good. Uh, but it goes very well with fire casino and they just complement each other well and or light casino and or white casino all kind of lead to the same place and kind of get a similar treatment in the old texts so, um, so, so something I'm, it, I'm not I don't think uh, this is quite common one of the things I find with the jhana I, I don't have great concentration and I find with the idea of jhanas and um, concentration. One of the things I found when I was doing lots of long retreats, I had this real striving. I had to attain, and I had to get places, and you know, it messes with your with your practice. And eventually, I let go of it all. Great, and I have a nice practice, and I enjoy it. And I always think, oh, jhana sound interesting, but I kind of imagine, oh, it's going to be frustrating, and I'm going to start getting back into the striving and the oh, I want to, I want to be able to visualize the fire thing. I want to be able to see, you know, getting back into that craving, which is so counterproductive. What was and I, this this is quite common. What's your thoughts about that? What's your advice? Yeah, except if you're just going with the colors and images that you see. So if you just keep in mind that when you're doing fire casino, there is usually a frustrating phase somewhere, particularly on retreat between like days two and seven or eight or something for most people, which we call the murk. And if you just the have, murk. yeah, <laughs> and if you just have faith and patience and curiosity. So I think if this much more is like a fascination practice than a strivey goal oriented practice, because fascination will get you vastly farther than anything else just to truly be fascinated. You're not supposed to be fascinated in Buddhism. You're supposed to be detached, whatever. Like fascination works for this. So just be fascinated um, because it just, uh, it, it works way better. And so people who have that fascination, that curiosity and that explorer spirit um, and can just go in whatever strange murky thing they're seeing or frustrating thing they're seeing, if they realize that paying attention to that is the thing that's gonna get them to the cool stuff, and just reminding themselves of that again and again. Uh, it, it has a way that's way less striving in some ways because it's easier for us to be fascinated with visuals. We've spent thousands of hours training to be fascinated with visuals, watching movies, watching TV, like maybe tens of thousands of hours, right? We're good at it. And if you just tune into that machinery and like fire it up and go, okay, I'm gonna be fascinated with the visuals that I'm seeing you know, as a result of this practice, um, that's a lot of strength to be drawing on. And, and, you know, if you just keep going and have people around you to reassure you, usually within seven to ten days, people get into some fascinating territory. And then you're like, OK, this is why I do this. Um, and that's not that long. Right. That's not that long a period of time of investment. You know, it's reasonable. So, so, so rather than getting obsessed with, oh, I have to be able to see a light, just do what you do in a standard Vipassana practice is whatever's going on. Yeah. You, you watch it and you right. get in, involved in it. If it's murk, it's murk. Right. And if it's fire, it's fire. And if That's it's it. pissed off, it's pissed off. That's it. OK. Yeah. And um, and and as you, you know, as we it becomes a bit of a joke, but black is a color. Like if you're just seeing black or dark or 
whatever, focus on the black. See if the black is really true black. See how strong you can make the black. See how perfect you can make the black. See how you know complete you can make the black. Really make that black all the black it can be, you know? And that is a fascinating practice, actually. Initially, it's like, oh, this is just black. No, it's black. Check out black. Yeah, black fascinating. Yeah. Right? I mean, all the clothes I'm wearing right now basically are black. Like, black's fine. The microphone I'm talking into is basically black. You know, like black's fine. Like nothing. Black's cool. Like and it's a, and people are like, oh, it's you know not some bright color. Well, so what? Like it turns out, it makes a great concentration object. So like you know, black is the new black, as I say all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um. so, so so they just just along these ideas, I'm, I'm something I'm intrigued by. You did a lot of practice, you did a lot of retreats, and you did a lot of, and there are a lot of this practice is about the ending of craving, not buying into craving. And at the same time, you were training to be a medical doctor, and you have to have a certain drive to do that. And one of the things certainly I've found, and other people have said, it's having this practice where you're moving away from craving, you're moving away from a sense of self, and also having a drive to, um, also having a drive to get certain things, you know, have certain jobs, we need to be out in the world, often seem to be contradictory. You know, what's, what's the phrase, um, Bawa Tanha, you know, it's, it's the, it's the yeah, craving yeah. of becoming, I want to right. become a doctor, I want to become a teacher. How, 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 do you, how do you navigate that? So I think it's extremely important to have very strict boundaries on the, the basic assumptions of the three trainings. So training in skillful action, skillful speech, skillful livelihood, skillful thought or view um, one that has a set of assumptions that energy and effort pay off that uh, that we can better ourselves that we can better this world uh, that, those are those assumptions that compassionate action is skillful that compassionate action should be praised that compassionate action should be cultivated right? and that we can cultivate ourselves and thus use that to benefit all beings that's those are the assumptions of the training in, in sila or ethic, ethical behavior or morality or whatever you want to call it. And so that's one set of training assumptions. Um, the next set of training assumptions for the concentration practices, the sort of depths of concentration, is that with effort, with specific agendas for what is going to happen in experience, we can create beneficial states of mind. We can cultivate bliss. We can cultivate tranquility. These are things that we should rouse effort, rouse energy. The Buddha was constantly saying, rouse effort, make effort, strive, like do these things, accomplish these things, right? And so that's the second training. And explicitly its assumptions are based on very specific agendas and cultivating specific things with the rousing of energy and the galvanizing of mind and using our full power to do that. There are all kinds of sutras where they talk about using the full power of the mind or bringing all our resources to bear basically to make this happen. Um, one fortunate attachment is there's a number of sutras that have that as the title actually there's four of them um, basically or not in the title but it's a poem within them and so uh, and then even concentration and wisdom right we cultivate the seven factors of awakening we cultivate actively mindfulness we cultivate energy we cultivate investigation we cultivate rapture we cultivate tranquility and concentration and equanimity and these things, as anybody who's ever tried to meditate knows, you have to put through energy. You have to actively, you know, combat the hindrances, you know, sloth and dullness and restlessness and worry and desire and anger or whatever. You, you have to actively work to not just be swamped by those, right? This is work, period. And so the, the, the trainings 
it, it's not through just trying to have no desire that one comes to these wisdoms, right? It's not through just trying to have no preferences that one comes to wake up. It's through actively cultivating very specific skill sets and feeding oneself while in the world and taking care of oneself and maintaining this machine so that it can do even the you know the intensive practices that it will take most people to wake up. Some people do it on less, but most people don't, right? And so just to maintain this machine, to have enough money to go on the retreats, to have enough food, to be in good enough physical health, to have good enough mental skills, that all takes work, period. This is work. And the Buddha was constantly saying, this is work, right? The Buddha was not just saying, do nothing, sit there, nothing matters, like, you know, ask for nothing, be nothing. That's not what he was saying. Like, the, you read the suttas and the, 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 you know, the vinaya, the, the, you know, the vinaya, however you want to pronounce it. That's not the message you get. And, and so this, this whole notion, I think that's become something because in the West, we're so unbelievably goal-driven, right? We're so, we have so many goals and degrees and cars and money and things and prestige and fame and success and whatever and kids and, you know, whatever and houses and all this stuff that we were supposed to accumulate and do and be and have and get that we just like, you know, so gravitate to a form of Buddhism that's like no craving, no desire, nothing do. Oh God, thank you. Oh shit. Like, oh fuck. <laughs> you know, please. Less stuff to do, less stuff to be, less stuff to get. Oh my God. You know, it feels so good just to say it, right? Like, holy shit, thank you. Like, finally someone let me be that. Or, you know, I, I get it, right? I mean, as someone who has like six major letters after their name and, you know, worked unbelievably hard to do all this stuff and wrote a book and all this crap. Like, you know, I, I totally understand, right? The whole achievement trip can be like an unbelievable pain in the ass. But that said, if you really want to change the, the world in your mind, like that's work, I'm sorry, like get over it, period. And there's ways to skillfully direct that, just direct it skillfully, direct those energies skillfully to this present moment, to mindfulness, to skillful action, to skillful change, um, to skillful acceptance, even just to accept this moment, moment after moment is work, as anybody who's ever tried to do it has noticed, right? It's weirdly enough, not easy, um, that's work. And so get used to it. It's going to be work. Okay, sorry. <laughs> but it's, yeah, but it's, it's less, it's not just that it's work. It is hard it's skillfully work. skillfully directed it, but, you know, work. Exactly. But, you know, as you say, you've written books, you've got letters, you've done an awful lot. Yeah. In that is often, uh, that can generate, you generate craving. You can walk towards the craving. Oh, I have to have a book or a letter. I'm, yeah, but I felt more driven or compelled in this other weird way. Like Bill died before he could write the book. So I felt like I had to because I didn't want this wisdom to be wasted. That's skillful. That's okay. That's compassionate. Like... You know, I was in the street clinic in India and I saw the good that fully trained doctors could do. They could really help people. That's okay. Uh, that's not some bad craving. That's just like compassion. That's like, I wanted to make the world a better place. I wanted to help patients. I wanted to, you know, I mean, you know, like it's not that it may not have had, you know, egoic aspects from some relative psychological sense. Sure, of course, right? But, but that's all, you know, that's the nature of this life we're born into. And so when I was in medical school and also doing a lot of Dharma practice, you know, was it was none of it for glory or fame or power or for renown or to be amazing? I'm sure some of it was. Okay, that's fine, right? But that's what I had to work with. That's what you investigate. You know, that's what you look at. That's, that's yeah. what was arising. And I'm very thankful for all of that because it helped. 
I mean, was it all skillful? No. Was some of it painful? Yeah. Was like, did screwed up things result from some of that? Sure. Like, okay, fine. But that's what I was going on, right? So you got to learn to work with these energies because if you just shut them down, then you're not going to do the work and it takes work. If you just say, oh no, I will, I will not achieve anything. Well, then you're not going to achieve anything. Oh, I'm not going to want anything. Well, how's, it's, uh, it's unrealistic, right? We're, we're in this life. You, you know, we're going to get hungry. You're going to want some stuff, you, whatever. Bring it into the practice yeah, and, and make absolutely. it the object and, and see work the with true it. the nature yeah. of those sensations. Shy away arise. from it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and work to cultivate a skillful relationship to those things. That's work too, to undo our conditioning from our childhood or our upbringing or our culture or advertising or whatever. Like that takes work. Like to, to look at the sides of ourselves we don't want to look at. That takes work and a tolerance for pain. You know, like, being with the unpleasant. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, so and, and even just doing most, what, most worthwhile things in this world take work and pain. I mean, it's not like there might not be some joy in it, too. I actually enjoyed a lot of, you know, my medical career and getting to help people is really sure. cool. I mean, it's, it's neat. You know, it was really rewarding when it worked out well. Um, but, you know, still, so if, if you just shut down the emotions when they arise like that and say, oh, I shouldn't crave anything, I shouldn't want anything. That just doesn't work out well most of the time. It just leads to what you'd figure, which is apathy and not getting much done. So, uh, yeah, I mean, a word you, I've heard you use quite a lot is, is honesty. So it's a sense yeah. of being honest, isn't right. it? Yeah, there's some ego, yeah, there's some craving in there, sure. but that's, that's, that's the way of it. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to look at that, and that's what's arising right now. Yeah, and it's not like everything that results from those things is bad. Absolutely, yeah. You know, there's ways to skillfully sort of bend those to, to better channels. Hopefully, sometimes. <laughs> There's something else. I mean, you, 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 the standard, until recently, the standard idea of becoming an Arahat, becoming fully enlightened, was that, um, was that it took lifetimes, it was nearly impossible. And I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, the book we have there, The Life of Ajahn Chah and The Lives of Ajahn Man, and they, these were famous forest Thai forest masters who, who went back to the forests in Thailand as monks and practice. I mean, they were in the levels of asceticism was insane and they were at it 20, 30 years. And um, you seem to have done it relatively quickly compared to that. What do you think of these sort of ascetic practices versus? Asceticism is really complicated and people, some people thrive in it and some people really don't. And for people, it often varies. Pure asceticism is not going to get you there. Um, it's true that a life of sort of hedonic debauchery is for some people less likely to lead to wisdom, although there are Zen masters and tantric masters who would hardly disagree with that statement. And there are some people who thrived in those environments. Is it rare? Yeah, but does it happen? Yeah. So like, I can't give blanket recommendations just straight up. And some people, you put them in a highly renunciate context and they just get irritable and neurotic as fuck. Like, you know, like that's just not going to help them. And they just get, you know, feel resentful and bitter and, and it just doesn't work well. But way more important than your degree of asceticism is your degree of paying attention to immediate experience because the three characteristics of impermanence and you know, the sort of weird suffering bound up in the sense of duality and things happening on their own are available at any time in any situation. And once you start to realize that, then you could go, okay, yeah, I'm working a job or yeah, I'm driving to work or yeah, I'm in, in a relationship or yeah, I've you know, got kids or yeah, I've got to pay the bills. But the three characteristics are always there and they're always showing up. And that's a fundamental basis of wisdom. Second after second, you know, many times a second, these 
these characteristics are demonstrating themselves. They're seeable, they're experienceable, they're understandable. And so from a wisdom training point of view, right, because that was how you framed your question in terms of success, uh, then these things are always there. And it truly is like, okay, here you are. Things are changing. Things are happening. Things are, notice them. And, and if one just decides, no, I'm going to live my life that way. I'm, I'm going to pay attention, which I did. Once I got obsessed with this stuff, I was going to pay attention every bit I could in daily life, every bit of formal practice I could get in, all the retreat time I could get, sure, because um, that helps too. And, you know, and all the books I could read on this stuff and the good teachers I could hang out with. There's a lot of things that contributed to this. I was really lucky. I got taught by some really good people. I was just like, you know, I just got really lucky in that regard. And they were just really good at pointing straight to the thing. They had a lot of wisdom. I'm really thankful for them. I wouldn't have figured this out otherwise. There's just almost no way, right? I'm not that good, but they were able to help me. And um, a number of them were just really good that way. And I ran into some really good uh, books and I ran into some um, <coughs> good companions along the spiritual path who were able to help normalize things and provide some wisdom and some maturity that I didn't have yet. And to be living examples of the fact that this stuff could work and I'm really thankful for all that. So it was a combination and I probably have some talent, right? So like not everybody's, you know, like I have unusual skills as a microphenomenologist, like seeing lots of really fine things really fast. I'm just good at that. I don't know, like- Just, just, just naturally. Yeah, just yeah. naturally, I think. I mean, I still required some cultivation, but there was clearly some underlying talent there. I mean, I don't mean to put this, like, you know, that's just one part of it though. Without all of the rest of it, that wouldn't have come to this, I'm quite sure. And so, you know, people seem to have different intrinsic abilities, but still, like, I've known some people who just thought of themselves as crap practitioners who eventually started going, no, I can do this. Like. I can I can wake up I can I can grow into these things and um, and so yeah and it's way easier today than it has been at most times in the past because there are more awake people around period and there are more you awake people yeah and there are more awake people who are being vocal about this stuff there were you know if you go back to Achan Cha's time there were not that many people in mm -hmm. Thailand who were being thought of as being serious badass practitioners even in Burma around Mahasi Sidao's time there were some but not that many like you can count them on one or two hands, right? I mean, that's not that many people and they kind of stayed in their own monasteries. They didn't travel that much. They kind of argued with each other. They did not get along, right? No, you know, right, like it's politics, right? And so like there are way more good books on this, how to do this stuff today with honest phenomenology, drawing on the great, you know, the commentaries and drawing on Mahasi Saito's examples of talking about this really straightforward and honestly and phenomenologically and other people who were kind enough to do that. And so we just have a real leg up on a lot of those people. We have better tech. We have better guidance. We have more opportunities for practice. We don't have as many like things screwing us up. I'm not in some mosquito infested jungle having to like try to figure out how to practice well with the unbelievable irritation or the malaria or the hunger or the like sore feet or the ants biting me or the, like that stuff can slow you down. I mean, it's not all just like, oh, I suffer in a jungle and that's going to give me wisdom. No, like maybe you're just suffering in a yeah, jungle. That's kind of what I'm wondering. Do you, do you, do you right? think they extended the, 
yeah, the time I mean, it took it's because possible, of that. Right? Yeah. I mean, but other people again, renunciation works well for them. Like from another point of view, I, I got a lot of out of getting really sick in India. Like I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, but do I think it helped me like get over this body and be less attached to this life in some way? Yeah, that's a terrible thing to say, but like true, right? But like I wouldn't recommend that path. Don't go get sick in India just to get spiritual attainments. You might just get sick. You might just die. I don't know. Like you might just have, you just have a bad time. Right. You might just have like exactly an unbelievably bad time. Don't do that. This is not like, but did I think it helps in some twisted way? Yeah. Like, but is that necessary? Clearly no. Because plenty of people like got all kinds of wisdom. They didn't lose 30 pounds in India or whatever, you know? Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, but do I, yeah, there, we live in a blessed time in a lot of ways. There, yeah, there's a lot of crazy out there and, you know, a lot of people competing for the spiritual bandwidth, but there's a lot of good stuff and way more of it. Um, and so, and a lot of supportive communities and people normalizing this stuff. Yeah, we're unbelievably lucky right now. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean something that when, I, when I was reading about these Thai forest masters, and it's interesting hearing your comments, I remember thinking, this, do, this doesn't sound natural or right. You know, what's, what's going on with this enlightenment process that these guys are having these horrendously difficult lives and that's what you have to go through. I, for a while, I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. This, this is way too much. And you, you do kind of wonder about, you know, why does it seem to be so difficult to go along the path? Are we meant to do it? Are we not meant to do it? That was no, also kind of part of the macho ritual. Like, I don't mean to, like, go all yeah. monk macho thing, but there's a lot of monk macho, right? I'd agree, not yeah. as much non-macho, non, non a little bit, right? But a lot of monk macho, right? I will prove myself. I will suffer. I will show how strong I am. And a lot of that's a life phase thing, right? That's what young men do. Right, that's what young men in their twenties to you know teens to twenties to thirties do. Right, where a lot of us are macho, we prove ourselves. We have testosterone poisoning or whatever. Right, it's just a thing. Right, we have all these demonstrations. Right, and if and if you're not demonstrating your you know your you know goat hunting skills to some woman or whatever, you're demonstrating like how long you can sit to some bunch other bunch of men. You know, whatever, but it's the same pattern, right? It basically just kind of rechanneled into a totally different social context with different ways of demonstrating, you know, how much testosterone you have in you. <laughs> you know, I'm not meaning to so rationalize. Flexing, yeah, exactly. Your arms, exactly. Your and yeah, your that's, you know, that's just, okay, we're mammals. We do that. That's a, that's a tribal thing, you know, and that's one of the ways we mark our territory and we establish dominance and hierarchy and we find our position in the pecking order or whatever. That, you know, it's just a bunch of mammals, pack mammals. It's a thing. Okay, so, you know. Well, what's, what's your thoughts about what one of the one of the arguments you hear a lot traditionally is? It depends on your karma. What work have you done in a past life? You know, you get some people who go to bed anxious and wake up enlightened. They the Buddhas, you know, there's endless tales of people who just become enlightened like that. And there's other people it takes years and lifetimes. And so some say, oh, it's what you did in last life or. What's your take? Why is, why is it so easy for some people and so difficult for others? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so clearly, uh, uh, so being a sort of a, a scientist and being a person who believes this is a causal lawful universe in some way, there are clearly things that lead to other things, there are causes that lead to effects. The, the basic notion, regardless of other specifics about how karma works or whatever, that there must be causes for these things. There must be causes for these things. I do not know what they all are. I know the traditional explanations. That is the traditional explanation. Do I think it's entirely batshit crazy? No. But do I think it's helpful? Most of the time, not. Because you have no idea 
what your karma is. You have no idea what your conditioning might be. You have no idea if you were in some past life what that might have been, you know, unless you've had a past life experience. But weirdly enough, I've had some past life experiences. And I actually think in the past life before this one, I was some pretty debauched Asura, which is some sort of warring, low-level, jealous god thing right that clearly was nothing resembling a, a skillful rebirth for accumulating good karma in fact i'm based on the limited memories for you know call me delusional or crazy or whatever but my own experience is that in a previous life i was not set up to have this one work out well right and this one has worked out well pretty much i mean like it's not like i haven't had screwed up messy you know traumatic things happen in my life like everybody i have Right. But this one's working out pretty darn well. I feel pretty friggin lucky. Right. Or something. Right. Um, but, you know, like, so I don't think my past life was that great. And the ones before it, I, you know, I think I was like skunk like things and bats and stuff like and some other weird Titanic fighting thing. I don't know, whatever. I mean, but like I have no obvious way to tie any of that into this. Right? It doesn't help. It doesn't help me, even though I've had these experiences, which may just be pure crazy or maybe highly psychologically explanatory or maybe ontologically true. I don't know, you know, um, whatever. Or maybe just more impermanent delusion. Who knows? Um, uh, you know, lots of ways to language these things or, you know, attempt to relate to them skillfully. Um, but I don't have any evidence based on my what seemed like past life experiences that they were some great setup for this. So based on that, like I go, okay, yeah, but whatever, like you don't know. The, the funny thing about karma is if you look at traditional dogma, they will say, and I think quite rightly, it is imponderable. It is too vast. It is too complicated. You cannot sort out all the causes and conditions. The universe is a ridiculously intricate thing, right? And it's been going on for a ridiculously long time, right? So even if you, you know, get into the whole karma past life thing, you don't know that 10,000 lifetimes in your past, you didn't do some like ridiculously meritorious thing that's gonna manifest now, I don't know, right? And so even if you buy, you know, you get into that whole sort of karma mentality, you have no clue. And when I first started practicing, I couldn't even feel my feet, right? And so like I had to, you know, found myself walking on the stone wall to even feel my feet when I started. I wasn't like some superstar when I started out, you know, I had the same, I, I couldn't follow three breaths in a row, like, yeah, but I trained and I was not going to take no for an answer and I changed that. Um, but why it works out for some and not for others is hard to tell. Obviously a zillion factors, but since it's imponderable, might as well give it a shot. <laughs> From a magical <laughs> cool. point of view, it's still like a thing in play, right? So there's a sort of magical notion that if the future's in play and you don't think it's a fixed thing yet, well, that's something you can manipulate or, or try to make come to some skillful outcome. So have a playful attitude about the future and, and give it a go. Why not? And it's, it's, it, um, for future life, you know, the, the standard model again is you, you become an Arahat and that means you're no longer reborn, that there is no more, there's no more lives for you. Does it? Yeah, so, but so there's some no, people there's say that's there was sad. never a you for which there were lives. What? Yeah, that's one of these things, right? So the whole notion is also based on a false premise. Um, it's not like... Hmm, how does one explain this? this? So this is where things get ontologically really dicey, right? So forgive me if I say shit that sounds crazy. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> right? From one point of view, um, this very much feels like an end point an end thing, 
I can totally understand why some people think of it that way. Like the delusion that seemed that might have caused rebirth seems utterly seen through. Okay, I can get why some people language it that way. From a totally different point of view, which seems equally valid, experiences are still occurring. These are all just experiences. This is now pure experience, is a strange thing to call it, but that's literally experientially true. They're just experiences. When this thing we're calling the Daniel dies, experiences will continue. The, the, the fact of experiences will not end because this corpse stops twitching. Experience is not Daniel's experiences. They never were Daniel's experiences. For example, from a relative point of view, you will still be having experience if I die. If I died right now and you were looking at my dead body, experience would still be ongoing. Experience is all there is from that point of view. In the seeing, there is just the seeing. There's not a self. And those experiences will continue. So experiences are not localized. They're not individual specific. Experiences are just experiences. It's a really th hard thing to wrap your head around existentially, right? What does that mean? While there are experiences, there will be experiences. That's a literal straightforward fact that seems on the one hand so obviously trivial as to be stupid or like boring or like so, but from another point of view, it was existentially unbelievably profound. And the fact that experience will still arise and vanish in someone so, so you can't see me, my fingers are doing quotes in the air. Air quotes, yeah. Or air quotes, right? You know, um, but that's just experience. This is still just experience. The whole thing is still just experience. That really is the wisdom of in the seeing is just the seen, in the hearing is just the heard. Experiences will continue to occur. So again, I'm just sort of... They were always empty. I'm going in through, that I'm going, high going wisdom sense. The standard models would say they that... They never were a self. None of them. Yours, yours, again, air quotes, aren't yours. Mine, air quotes, aren't mine. Well, They're it's... just experiences. There literally never were any selves in any of this. It's just the unfolding, apparently conscious universe to get ontologically complicated again. But what, so put it another way. What, what's the difference? If you don't mind my asking, being on this topic, what's the difference between when an Arahat's body dies and a non-Arahat's body dies, do, do, do you, what happens afterwards? Do you have an awareness or do you know Causality anything? rings on. Causality has always been ringing on. Causality will continue to ring on. That's all this is. But will I know I'm about it? I'm just going to full stop right there all right, cool. and let that sink in <laughs> for just a second. Causality rings on. Experience rings on moments continue to unfold experiences will continue to arise and vanish they were never mine they were never yours they were never anybody's that is the teaching of the buddha they were just stuff occurring impersonal that's no self that is emptiness grokking that is hard but that is the friggin punchline <laughs> to the great cosmic joke. <laughs> cool. All the right. Vedantists are going to hate that. Sorry, Vedantists. What, what would the Vedantists argue? Yeah, so they would go for the eternal, you know, 
consciousness or the true self, some of them. It varies by the Vedantas. They're not a homogenous bunch when it comes to ontology or final endpoints or whatever. So I didn't mean to you know, lump them all in the same category. They're not. Um, but some people believe in like a substrate consciousness that is stable, that is a refuge, that is a thing, that is you, that is your true home, that is your true self. Such a thing cannot actually be found, period. Anybody who thinks they've found it, it's a trap, sorry. Hate to dis disillusion you. It can be seen to be impermanent, to change, or just one more experience that arises and vanishes. No matter how subtle, no matter how abstract, no matter how much it seems like it's a substrate fundamental thing that has nothing to do with experience or time, yeah, it does if it's an experience. It arises and vanishes like everything, naturally, causally. Sorry, the Theravada kids are right on this. Don't mean to be sectarianly arrogant, but it's just true. And some of the better Vedantists actually understand that as well. Um, but it's common to get sort of stuck along the way with this sense of a transcendent permanence that is an us, that is a transcendent special us, or a sublime us, or a, a, a global consciousness us, or a something us. No, I'm sorry, the Buddha was right. I apologize for, if that just sounds like a needlessly sectarianly arrogant <laughs> statement. Again, I know it does, forgive me. Um, but like, yeah, everything comes and goes, just naturally and causally, period. Hard to wrap your head around, unbelievably profound. Never was a self. Never any true rebirthing self in any of it. More stuff happening. But is there an awareness that comes and goes? Or is that what that Experience continues to arise and vanish. There is no separate awareness from experience. Another profound teaching of the Buddha. There is no separate stable awareness. They're merely phenomena rolling on causally, naturally some of which might be called Daniel, some of which might be called Danny, some of which might be called something else. But they're just experiences they're coming just and going. Coming and going. There is no such stable awareness. It never was. These things arise and vanish. Period. Full stop. Think on that. That's heavy shit. Yeah. It's good, it's good shit. Too. But it's actually realizable. You can literally realize this for yourself, which is pretty awesome. It doesn't transform everything the way you'd like it to but it, it resolves fundamental existential questions in a very powerfully direct spiritual, like, like embodied way, like obvious way. So that's one of the super cool things. These things that seem unbelievably abstract like that, you can literally have those be a living experience that An is straightforwardly yeah. clear. And that is pretty friggin' awesome. Cause it, 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 it's, like the, it's like the natural like resolution of so much philosophical and religious crap. Um, it's just delightful that way. That's one of the coolest things about it. So it's, it's, it's basically go out and find out for yourself. Yeah, and, and you, you can through straightforward you, yeah, investigation yeah. of your experience, and you'll get these answers, and you'll get these experiences, and they will be there. You might. I don't know. Uh, yeah. No, I'm not promising no, that no, as, as a fixed, yeah, perfect yeah. promise. It's not like everybody will succeed. I don't know why. I'm sorry. Mm. Like that's always been that way. Um, even when the Buddha was around, who's you know apparently a pretty badass teacher. Like, not everybody who was around got enlightened. A lot of them did, but not everybody. Okay. It just seems like the way it is. Sorry. In the next part, Daniel will be talking about the use of psychedelics his take on the modern secular mindfulness movement and a bunch of other cool stuff.